Love Talk Radio. You're listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. Welcome to another episode of The Keys 107. We are so happy that you have decided to spend the evening with us as we present the financial key with our very special co-host, financial expert and business consultant, Haroon Niket. I am Rafika. I'm here. I'm excited. I'm so excited to be talking about real estate. You know, I think that is one of my favorite financial key topics. Well, Rafika, you know, uh, I would like to say to you that it should be. I mean, all <laughs> wealth, all wealth starts with owning something of your own, and there's nothing more real than real estate. So we want to <laughs> yes. go straight into this thing because I know there's plenty of listeners out there who have a desire to know more about how they can become homeowners. And as uh, as we've been leading to this week. Uh, this episode, a lot of folks have been chirping about real estate. It's time, people. Yeah, time so let's go to the um, healthy tip of the day with Medea Allen. And just to let our listeners online know that you can call in and talk directly to Haru. And the number is uh, 213-943-3618. 213-943-3618. As you know, we're going to tell you, go get your pen and your paper. Get ready to take notes. Haru is live right after the healthy tip of the day. The Keys 107 presents the healthy tip of the day. The healthy tip of the day is to rest when you feel tired. How many times have you went for coffee or energy drinks to give yourself a boost when feeling tired? The best way to battle fatigue is to surrender and rest. Sometimes a power nap of 20 to 30 minutes is all you need to re-energize. If you find that you're still feeling tired after a power nap, consider getting more rest at night. Getting adequate rest is just as important as good nutrition and exercise for a healthy lifestyle. You'll feel more alert, focused, and get more done in less time when you allow yourself to rest when you feel tired. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by Organic Soul Chef, Medea Allen. For more healthy lifestyle tips, sign up for my newsletter at OrganicSoulChef.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother Jay. The alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today 
For more information, visit them online, www.thefluffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother J. So, you know, the uh, fluffs live on cloud cumulus. And I wonder what houses go for, what's the real estate situation on cloud cumulus? Pick up your copy of the fluffs. They're on sale on Amazon for $12.99. Okay, Haruya, Mike is live. Check in. I'm here, and I'm excited about this program. This is one of my favorite subjects as well. There you go. (laughs) So before we go into uh, today's topic, just give us a quick recap. I heard that your seminar went well. Yes, we did our our first annual Wealth Masters Symposium, um, May 6th. That was on a Saturday, and we had about 10 speakers talking about different uh, subjects on how to gain wealth. You know, one of, one of the objectives of the program was to let people out there know that, you know, despite the um, mindset that success doesn't look like us and success, you know, uh, is a certain gender, that, you know, we have successful people out there that are willing to share how to be, you know, wealthy. And mm. it, it was incredible. The crowd was energized. The speakers were energized. Um, the relationships that were created afterwards, um, the wealth challenge that we, you know, got everybody into. So, you know, the, the momentum is still going. It wasn't one of those things where, you know, people speak and then they just disappear on you. You know, it was all about establishing those relationships and, and creating a support system so people could be successful. Um, so it was fantastic. Well, I, well, you know, I real... just want to say Go ahead, James. I spent. I, I I think it was a time well spent for me to come and join you and your team, which did a magnificent job. You were very well organized, and everyone was prepared. That made a presentation, and like you said, very uh, hands on. They were you were able to walk up and talk with them, exchange numbers, network, and I walked away from there knowing that you have something special. So uh, Count the Keys 107 is one of your primary supporters with the Wealth, uh, the wealth ma- uh, Masters Symposium. I appreciate that. I'd, I'd love to have you guys on board. Yes, um, and just so people know, I do before I'm going to mention at the end, but I do have my last workshop of the, the season uh, this Sunday um, at 2 o'clock. And then I take the summers off, and then you guys will have to wait until September to get another free workshop. So. Okay. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I thought I thought you I thought you was gonna tell Haru about Natalie. Oh, the networking. I, we have one of your presenters will be on our show a couple right. of weeks from now. We'll we'll put it out there. We haven't actually uh, put everything together, but she is booked, and we are going to have a fabulous day. Natalie Nicole, Natalie D. Nicole, who is a, a social media expert. Uh, and a great present, uh, presenter is going to talk about uh, using social media to build your business. So the power of social media. So, yeah, that's a couple of weeks from now. It's in June. And, uh, we'll, you know, before then, we'll make sure we have some uh, marketing material out there so everyone knows when she's coming on. All right. All right. All right. Let, let's get into the most profitable least risky real estate investment strategies 
that you know of. I know so, exactly. That I know yeah. right now. And, and, that's, and, it's, it's, and that's the point of it is right now. Um, you know, you hear a lot of advertisements and you hear a lot of people talking about different types of real estate. You hear people talking about wholesaling or flipping or landlording or short sales or pre-foreclosure, foreclosure, bank loan, tax lien certificates, auctions, and blah, blah, blah. They have all these different strategies. And the reality is that each one of those can be profitable at the right time and in the right place. But they all can't be profitable at the same time in the same place. Mm. And so, yeah, and that's important to understand. So just because somebody offers you a technique or a strategy, um, it doesn't mean that it will work where you're at at the time that they're offering it to you. And so Mm. we have to understand that there are many factors that determine which type of real estate is profitable at a given time and in a, a specific geographic place. So, for instance, when we talk about uh, flipping or what some people call wholesaling, and I don't know why they call it wholesaling. It's not really wholesale. You're buying it retail and just marking it up. Um, when people talk about flipping houses, which means that you buy it for one price, you put some improvements on it, and then you sell it for a higher price, that technique is most profitable when there is small supply and huge demand. So, like, when we talk about 2001 and 2005, um, there was a huge demand for properties, and then there were other factors that caused that. So what were the factors that caused that? Credit became easy to acquire right, because they, they eased the, the requirements on, on getting mortgages. So pretty much anybody qualified with no money down, with um, no documentation. And so what it did was it, it had a huge influx of buyers in the market. And we had this huge influx of buyers in the market with a limited supply of properties the prices started skyrocketing. So flipping made sense at that time. Landlording didn't make sense because if you bought a property at a high price where wages didn't go up, people couldn't pay the rent. And that's how the whole thing tumbled in the first place. So landlording is actually better uh, when it's difficult for people to qualify for a mortgage, but employment and cash flow is readily available. And so you have all these different factors that dictate which type of real estate strategy would be the best for you to use um, at any given time. So, you know, we have to really be careful when, when people, you know, offer particular strategies um, and say it can work anywhere. There's no strategy that can work anywhere. What I tell you today won't work everywhere, but I'll tell you how to make it work um, in certain places and anybody can take advantage of that. So, it's, you know, it's really important to understand that real estate is trendy, you know, the techniques are trendy, and that no trend will last forever. And so, you know, we have, I have this philosophy, ride it till the wheels fall off, and then be moving on to the next, you know, strategy that works best where you're at. So, okay. you know, I had to, had, to, had to make sure that was really crystal clear first. Well, well even before you go further, you, you mentioned wholesaling and flipping in the same sentence, but there is some difference to the two. Am I correct? Not really. <laughs> um, wholesaling mm-hmm. was, is a, is, really was a marketing term. You know, flipping mm-hmm. means to buy it and resell it. So, you know, there's not, there's not, not, a, you know, tremendous difference in, in regards to that. So, um, if you're buying it at a low price and selling it at a high price, even if you're, if you're selling a contract, you know, that's the same concept of mm-hmm. buying at one price and, and selling at another price. Um, wholesaling is with a, a marketing term to entice people who are not really investors to get into the game because it sounds like it's cheaper. Um, but if you're already in the game, you, you never. People who were already investors never use the term wholesaler. You know, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of one way you can tell somebody who's a real investor and somebody who's not. And somebody said, "I do wholesaling." I'm like, "Okay, you're not an investor. You're an amateur who's trying to be an investor." 
um, because of, you know, flipping is flipping. Uh, so buying for one price and selling for a higher price is, you know, people have been doing that for, for a long time. Uh, but like I said, that's not necessarily a profitable market today, you know, uh, when we look at the limited supply of qualified buyers and the large glut, actually, of, of properties on the, that are available, it's hard to flip because somebody can, they don't have to pay a higher price for what you sold them. You know, they can look elsewhere. So um, you can make money flipping, but it's, it's really, that's a tough market right now. Mm-hmm. And selling contracts is virtually useless, you know, um, not 100%, but, they, you know, I'm going to talk about a strategy to make that work too. Uh, okay. Later. So the challenge is with this flipping wholesaling is that the supply is greater than the, the demand. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Yep. Okay. And this only really works well if you have a huge demand but yet a small supply of houses. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. Just want to keep and it clear. Drives, yeah, that drives prices up. And the same thing, you know, with you know, people talking about short sales. Short sales are not good in every market. Short sales you know, there was a time when short sales were great when, again, you had um, a lot of uh, demand and low inventory. But then after so many people foreclosed and you didn't have buyers, you couldn't even do anything with a short sale. You know, so, you know, again, a lot of the, the things that were profitable 10 years ago are no longer profitable. Things that were profitable five years ago are not profitable anymore. Um, and mm-hmm. there's some things you just can't do in certain uh, geographic locations. Like you, you can't do tax certificates in New York City. They don't have them in New York City. The Bank of New York, it's all tax liens. So, you know, when people try to sell you these programs, you have to be really conscious and, and careful um, that they're not selling you something that you can't really use where you're at. So don't spend a whole lot of money on it before you figure out if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So okay. in, in order to, to really be successful, I think we have to adapt with the way the world has changed. And, you know, we're seeing these major economic shifts and we're seeing these major policy shifts, but we're still trying to use old strategies and old mindset force fit them into a new world. And, you know, we have to really begin to rethink this whole thing. So the, the, the game is still the game, but the rules have changed dramatically, and so we have to play it differently. And so the old way was raise money for a down payment and agree to a 30-year mortgage obligation um, and, you know, try to do whatever it is that you're going to do with it, either flip it or, you know, like I said, landlord with it. Um, and that, we have to understand, presents some serious risk in the way the economy is today. So depreciation is a real risk today. You know, we saw that before there was this idea that real estate values will continue to climb irregardless of what's going on in the rest of the economy, and it will always do that forever. And so there was really no risk in paying whatever amount you paid for it because eventually it would continue to appreciate and you would gain equity and value. We realized that that's not the case 100%. You know, we, we saw huge dips in values uh, for a long period of time, and some places actually never recovered. And so, you know, we're kind of spoiled here in New York because we saw an increase in prices that far exceeded what it was before, you know, the market crashed, but there are other factors that caused that. And so when you look at places that didn't recover economically, like in the Rust Belt, when you're talking about, you know, Cleveland and, and parts of Michigan um, and uh, other parts of Ohio, the, the real estate market didn't come back and may never come back because there are no people there. There are no jobs there. There's no income to be had. And so we have to really understand that depreciation is a significant risk today. We have to understand that 
uh, foreclosure due to a loss of income is a real risk today. Losses due to need of, of major repairs and not having the cash flow, um, we're talking about roof, boilers, electric, or plumbing, um, that's a significant risk today. And so we want to begin to think, how can we minimize risk and maximize profit at the same time? Because it, they tend usually not to go together. Usually when we think of the most profitable things, they're the most risky things as well, and we figure that's why you can get a huge profit because you took the greatest risk. And mm-hmm. we need to start thinking now, how can I minimize risk and maximize profit at the same time? And so in, in order to do that, we have to start thinking instead of ob- obligations. So like I said before, we always thought about this 30-year obligation you know, this commitment to this piece of property for for an extended period of time. And my philosophy with real estate is to have options instead of obligations. And so mm-hmm. when we begin to think like, yeah, when we begin to think like that, you don't get stuck in one mode because if that doesn't work for you, then what do you do now? And I'll give you an example. Um, with a single piece of property that I've owned for many years, I started out, I had, uh, because it was designated as six rooms, two, two apartments uh, on the CFO. I had rooms and two apartments. And then I converted it to a hostel. I did extremely well with a hostel. And then the credit crisis hit Europe, and hostels weren't profitable anymore. But the credit crisis that hit New York, and people were losing jobs, and they were homeless. So I converted it to a place for the Department of Homeless Services. Um, after the Department of Homeless Services went out of business and the economy started to recover, then I converted it to nice apartments. And so we have to understand you, you need to have these options and not get stuck in one mode of, of thinking. And as the trends begin to shift, you have to have enough flexibility even in that piece of property, whether you own it, and I'm going to talk about some other ways to, to, to control it. Um, you have to have various ways to generate income because when one dries up, you can't be stuck with a loss. And so all the, all the old ways of, of thinking with real estate, we have to begin to modify. And so that leads me to my next concept of it's better to control than it is to own. Mm. You know, and, and it, it's an old way of thinking that I need to put my name on it. I need to have ownership of it. But ownership of it means that you own all the liabilities that are attached to it as well. Right. And so I'd rather control it. And because if I can control it, then I I control the cash flow that comes from it. As so give me I'm an example. Cash, okay, <laughs> I knew that was good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I know that sounds so foreign, right? That that's like a foreign concept to people. I need to visualize to this it. one. Yeah, control it, don't own it. So there's only two ways that you can control the property contractually, right? You can control the property with a purchase contract, or you can control the property with a lease agreement. So, so what, what tends to happen is we think that the best way to control the property is to have a purchase contract and then sign that agreement and close and own the property. Yeah, you can control the property that way, but I can just as well control the property if I sign it. You can own it if you want to and own all the liabilities attached to it. And if I sign a lease agreement with you, I get to do what I want with the property. That means I'm controlling the cash flow that comes to this property. I have an agreement with you. I pay you. But I also control, you know, the usage and, and, and you know, um, how much money can be generated from, from the place. And as long as you're getting paid and as long as I abide by the agreement of our lease agreement, then 
you know, you it's pretty much hands off for you. However, mm-hmm. if if in our agreement, if the roof goes bad, like we talked about before, that's on you. If the electric goes bad, if the plumbing goes bad, uh, if the boiler goes bad, if all those major things uh, go bad, that's on you. The tax obligation on the property, that's on you. The water and sewage, that's on you. The heating cost, that's on you. And so, you know, I'm, I have the ability now to control income without that liability, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really important. But so before you go on, I, I, yeah, I'm understanding the concept very, very well. I think it's a revolutionary thought in the sense that, you, you know, when we look at uh, lease deals for the most part in the past, it was sort of saying, um, I just didn't have enough money to purchase the building, so I'm just going to lease it. Or that location is nowhere that I can afford to buy something there, but I can lease a property and I can um, still do my business. The building owner is basically a silent partner in my business. I pay him once a month and I conduct my business, you know, almost, you know, uh, just a higher form of sharecropping almost. But what you're well, saying, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was I'm sorry. A lot of people, a lot of people may have this, this idea of I'm paying this person's mortgage. You know, I'm paying them every month. I'm paying their mortgage. And oftentimes they don't realize the amount of expense that an owner actually incurs where oftentimes the, the leasee is making more money than the landlord is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a myth that the landlord, the landlord does not pocket all the money that comes in, into their hands because, again, they're responsible for all those other things that you're not responsible for. And oftentimes um, landlords run at break even or even a loss, um, and they're stuck with that, you know, obligation over, like I said, a 30-year period of time. You know, one thing we have to understand, too, is especially with business, businesses are, are, are going up and down uh, really fast, meaning that they become profitable faster than ever, but they're also dying faster than ever. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that you don't want to do is make this long commitment, you know, especially with a purchase, and be stuck, right? And so, you know, my rule always in, in business, real estate is a business, by the way, is test small, lose small, test big, lose big. And so if I want to test my business model, however I want to, you know, um, utilize this lease, if I want to test that business model, I'm not going to agree to a 30-year mortgage to test. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd rather break a lease agreement and have to pay a little bit of money for breaking the agreement than uh, go into foreclosure on a, on a mortgage, which is really going to damage me far greater um, in the long run than, you know, breaking a lease. Okay. You know, we, so, you know, and that, that idea of not being able to afford used to be for homeowners, not, not, not people who were uh, into real estate. So what happens is most people don't even think of the concept of being a real estate investor if you're leasing. Mm-hmm. Right? If I say a real estate investor, you say, oh, how many properties do you own? You know, how many properties do I control is a better question. Mm-hmm. So it's not about owning per se, especially as an investor. You know, as a home homeowner, that's a whole different thing. There's an emotional aspect to that. There's a sense of security that goes with that. There's a sense of inheritance that goes with that. That's a totally different concept. But if we're talking about maximizing profits, right, we're talking about maximizing profits and minimizing risk simultaneously, then we have to look at the strategy. And so it's not just a lease. It's creating what we call a sandwich lease, right? So sandwich lease is a fancy way of saying I have a right to sublet, I'm, le- I'm, I'm leasing it from the landlord, and they give me a right to sublet, which means I have a right to then lease it to someone else. 
Okay. Okay. That's critical in this strategy. You can't just lease something from someone without the right to sublet and expect to be able to profit from it. Mm-hmm. Because then you're breaking your lease agreement and then they can just throw you out. And so it's really important when we're talking about, you know, creating a strategy that that language is in your lease agreement, that you have a right to sublet. Um, right. Some, sometimes that takes offering the landlord a little bit more than what they were asking for. Yes. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, but you have to factor that in. So if I have to pay a little more than market value, that's fine as long as the outcome, you know, uh, in terms of the, the money that's generated covers that cost as well. Right. So, yeah. I was going to say, you, you mentioned some time ago that in negotiating these deals, most times it's price versus terms. So yes. if, um, if the owner is going to uh, have in that lease agreement, which sometimes is 30, 40 pages of stuff <laughs> to read, right, uh, mm-hmm. you have to make sure if the terms is that you want to have the ability to sublet, then it has to be in there, you know, in that, and so in doing that, he may charge you a couple of hundred dollars extra a month. And I say right. that, or in the case, I just signed a deal just recently. And uh, one of the terms that we have that term, the sublet, but however, uh, we worked it out where we wanted certain renovations to go on in the, in, in, in our place. They were right. willing to do it at a certain price but then we switched it and said, make us the showcase uh, property, whereby anybody that want to lease something in your buildings, they come here and they walk into this place, it's already sold. They're going to know they have to pay your dollar value for the, uh, for, the, the, for the property that they want based upon the showcase that you see here. So it's all about negotiating and making sure, like you said, read the, the fine line in those 30 or 40 pages lease agreements. Right. And, and you can't get discouraged because every landlord is not going to do it. No matter how much you offer them, there will be some mm-hmm. landlords that say no. And that's okay. You know, that's just part of doing business. Some people will say no, but you don't give up. You find somebody. There's somebody who will do it, you know. Um, and, the, and the more you educate them on what you're trying to accomplish, actually the better. Some people think, you know, uh, being vague is a better strategy. But being vague makes people uncomfortable. Yes. And when people are uncomfortable, they do nothing. And so, you know, the, the more, you know, open and honest you are about what you're trying to accomplish, the better, because then they can make a better business decision, you know, for themselves. Mm-hmm. So we want to have that, that ability, like I said, to, to do a sandwich lease, the right to sub that a property. Now, the question is, how do I pay a landlord what they're asking for and maybe a little bit more than the market value and still make money on top of that? Good question. So there, um, that's the good question. That's the, that's the big money question, and that's really the crux of what we're trying to, to accomplish today. So I said in the beginning that real estate is based upon market trends. And so we have to look at certain trends. And I'm going to use New York City first as an example just to, to, to show the trends because this is where I live and this is where I invest. So I'm going to show the trends, but you have to look at the trends everywhere. So and one thing we have to understand, too, is just because you live in another state doesn't mean you can't do it in New York City, by the way. All right, that's one thing we have to be, be clear on, too. If, if there is a place and we can manage it, um, meaning that we can control it, and we live in another state, it doesn't matter. You can still be profitable. You don't have to live 
in a place to, to lease a place and have a right to sublet it. So one thing we have to understand, there's been like a major economic shift in New York City. Everybody's noticed it. Uh, everybody's seen the demographic shifts. Everybody's seen, um, you know, all these business changes and New York cleaning up and um, it's becoming so attractive to tourism. We have bike lanes everywhere and um, everybody's seen these magnificent changes. And you can't help also but see people dragging around suitcases everywhere in New York City. Even in, in what used to be the worst neighborhoods in New York City, in, in Brooklyn in particular, you see people dragging around suitcases, staying in different places. And so there's been this, this major trend, and I'm going to go back all the way to 2011 and show you this trend. Tourism in New York City has changed dramatically and has increased to record proportions. And so we go back to 2011 when, the, when a recession uh, officially ended. We have 50.9 million visitors to New York City. Um, 40.3 million came from the United States and 10.6 million international. In 2012, that number went up to 52.7 million. In 2013, it went up to 54.3 million. In 2014, 56.5 million. And in 2015, 58.5 million. And it was 46.2 million domestic and 12.3 million international. In 2016, the estimate now, the numbers haven't come out officially, is 59.7 million visitors to New York. And by 2018, they think just a million visitors will come from China alone. And so when we see that there's this, this increasing trend, and every year we're breaking records for tourism in New York City, then we say, how do we take advantage of this trend, this, this shift? Everybody who comes to New York City doesn't want to stay in the posh hotels in Manhattan. And, you know, I have some experience in the tourism industry because, you know, as you know, I had the hostels, um, which is which really was the, uh, the thing that preceded all this new vacation rental thing. So we have to start looking at vacation rentals. And so when we, we look at, you know, uh, the number of people coming in and the number of people who, who really don't want to stay in a hotel and would love to stay you know, in, in, one of the, in somebody's home, in an apartment, or in a room, or on a couch, so that they don't have to pay those prices, that they just stay there and sleep there and go someplace else, then we have to start looking at, my thing is, okay, I see the number of travelers, and I'm thinking vacation rentals. How do I know if vacation rentals is profitable? And so I start looking at different websites that do the marketing for uh, vacation rentals. The one everybody knows is Airbnb. That's the number one that everybody knows. So um, Airbnb, you have to look at that. HomeAway, you have to look at that. There's another one, VBRO.com, Rumorama.com, and FlipKey.com, and HomeToGo.com. So when I looked at those things, I said, okay, let me see what the average person is paying for a, a couch, a bedroom, a studio, shared room, and so I started looking at the numbers. So I looked at each one. The most popular one, everybody knows, is Airbnb. And in Brooklyn, I looked at Brooklyn, just Brooklyn, $70 for a couch per night. $70 to lay on a couch per night. For a two-bedroom, average $225 per night. Then I looked at HomeAway and VBRO. So I said, Let me, what's the studio going for? Studio, like, you know, it's just a one-bedroom. It's not even, well, you can't even call it a bedroom. Studio, $150 a night. 
And I said, oh, wow, okay. So they must have bigger things. They had one six bedrooms, $800 per night for six bedrooms, mm. $800 per night. So I said, okay, let me look on Rumorama. Rumorama had studios for $85 a night, one bedroom, one bath, $220 a night. So I went on Flip Tea. One bed, one bath, $88 a night. Three bedrooms, two baths, $736 a night. Then I went to Home, home to Go because Home to Go breaks it down by even neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. So I said, you know, I wonder what East New York is doing. Now, those who, who are not from Brooklyn, East New York historically has been one of the most economically depressed, drug-infested, crime-ridden neighborhoods since the 1960s, from the 60s all the way up until almost present time, until maybe last year. It was one of the roughest neighborhoods. Average one-bedroom in East New York was $174 a night. And in other neighborhoods in Brooklyn, $273 a night. So I said, okay, so let's just kind of average this out. If we talk about, we, can, we know for one bedroom we can get $150 a day, and you won't book for 30 days. It's almost impossible just because of the way people book. If you can book 25 days at $150 per night, and again, some neighborhoods, like I said, 275 250 but if we just said 150 a night for 25 days, that's $3,750 a month. Now, if we just say we had to pay a landlord $1,800 a month for rent, and that's for a good neighborhood, $1,800 a month. We could probably do East New York for maybe $1,300, dollars $1,400 a month. So let's say we did $1,800 a month because we paid above market value. And then we look at our other expenses, $300 for somebody to clean the place every, every month, right? It's $300 a month. $100 maybe for utilities because all you need is electric. $100 for miscellaneous because sometimes things break or stuff happens. Your expenses are about $2,300 a month. So you're talking about a profit margin of $1,450 a month or $17,400 a year. So, of course, you can, can you live off that? No. But who says you only have to have one unit? Mm-hmm. And so if you multiply that, so you have three units, you're talking about $52,200 a year profit. If you had six units, and again, it becomes easier as you begin to, to multiply out. If you had six units, that's $104,400 profit. It, to me, it doesn't make sense not to explore that option because you're not doing any work. Because when you look at how you do it, you know, the, the booking services basically, basically do the booking for you. Um, if you give people a passcode, you don't even have to ever be there because they can punch a passcode to get in. The cleaning person is cleaning. You're collecting money through the, the, the booking service who puts it in your bank account. You know, when we, have, when we look at that strategy, we're talking about that's $104,400. So what becomes our risk? Our risk is travelers, for some bizarre reason, the trend suddenly just drops off. And it could happen. It could be a major uh, uh, terrorist attack in New York City that makes people stop coming. It could be, I don't know, something that happens – with the airline, it could be something could happen. It's possible it could happen. But then we're not stuck with a 30-year mortgage. We're stuck with the lease, and we give the landlord 30 days' notice, I'm leaving. And they say, no, you might have to pay me a little. So you might have to pay a little something to break the lease. But you're not stuck with a 30-year mortgage, and you have the potential mm-hmm. of easily pulling in over $100,000 extra a year. So the control. About control. I want to control it. I don't want to own it. So 
people say, oh, it sounds easy, but, you know, how do, you, how do we do this? It's not really that, that challenging. So I'll, I'll actually go over step-by-step step the process of, of, of doing that. So, Guru, uh, just give thing, me those yes. websites again. You said um, hometogo.com, uh, Roomarama. Home yeah, and that's with, a two, that's with a number two, by the way. Home, oh, the number okay. two, go, um, dot com. We have homeaway.com. We have airbnb.com. We have vbro.com. Roomorama, R-O-O-M-O-R-A-M-A.com. And we have flipkey.com. Now, uh, now these are sites that uh, we should study. Uh, yes. Prices and locations yes. um, to yes. see what they're doing, so we can duplicate it. Absolutely, and then, and, and those, those become your booking. Search. So you don't have to market. All you have to do is post your stuff on there. So you're saving on the marketing cost. You're saving on having to collect the money. You're saving on all those things that you would normally have to do. You save, mm-hmm. and, if, and you can post on all those sites. By the way, okay, uh, good enough. Can, yeah, and so the thing is. If you're not here, you know, and I just looked at Brooklyn. If you're someplace else, you want to look at if it's profitable in your in your location where you're at already. And if it's not where you're at, then look at some locations that are close enough by um, where you can, you know, get to it uh, to check on your place every once in a while. So it's important that we study trends. So everybody should, for vacation rentals, um, your your local government should also keep statistics on tourism. So when you look at, you know, I have a, a friend who owns a property in Washington, D.C., and he's doing great with, with uh, vacation rentals. You know, Dallas does great with vacation. There's so many places around the country where, you know, they have a heavy tourism, um, and you have to just, all you have, all you have to do is look at the trends. So, again, everything is about trends. So we look at the trends for vacation rentals where we're at, and then if it's not, you know, really great, we look at it close by and see if it makes sense for us to be able to, to do it there. And then we look at those sites and look at how much people are paying you know, uh, average for those locations. And then we, you know, look at, again, the rent and do the numbers, and the math doesn't lie. The math will tell you whether it's profitable or not. And really the analyzing is just that simple. So we have to look at at the different, you know, steps. Um, And one thing we have to understand, you have to consider, uh, are zoning laws and tenancy rights. That's really important to, to, to look at because in New York City, there's a new law that passed that says you cannot advertise. It used to be you just couldn't, uh, you couldn't rent in an apartment building short-term lease. They, in 2011, they made that, that rule where you could no longer do what they call transient uh, renting in an apartment building. That meant you couldn't do less than 30 days. So it was very difficult to do vacation rentals in uh, four units or less in a building. Then they came up with this new law that just passed, um, a couple months ago, that says you can no longer advertise because they weren't able to enforce the other law because how would they ever know? You can no longer advertise short-term rentals in an apartment building. And so there are certain, you know, uh, ways to get around that if you're in New York City. One of the rules was, as part of that, that law, is that the, the person on the lease had to also be in the apartment to let to lend, lease it out. So one of my students, what she did was really, I thought, brilliant, a brilliant way to to uh, use the law properly. Uh, she has a friend because it's a two. Uh, she had a three bedroom. 
who she allows her friend to stay in, who's on the lease also, to stay in one of the, the rooms. Um, and she doesn't have to pay rent because she's the manager uh, and the cleaner for the place. And so she gets to use that room and the apartment, and then she does Airbnb and the other two apartments. And so that's a way to, you know, get around that, that law. Um, also, if you did it in a two-family house or a three-family house, then you can also get around that law. Um, so it's just multiple dwellings where it becomes problematic. And so you don't have to have all your units in the same building. And so you're not violating the law by doing it that way. We have to make sure we don't violate the law because that law in particular is just a hefty fine. And really not, when you think about how much you're going to make, it's really not a hefty fine. It's a $1,000 fine the first time you get caught. And I think it goes up to 5000 and it can go as high as 25000 which is, you know, pretty, pretty high at that point. Uh, but you don't have to do, you know, uh, you don't have to violate the law in order to make it successful. And New York City is probably the only place that, that has that. Um, other states, you know, they don't have that issue, but you need to make sure you check your zoning laws um, and the tenancy rights because that's important too. You don't want somebody to come in there and then become a legal resident and you have to evict them because they won't leave. So make sure you check those things. We're talking about options. Um, instead of obligations, for those of you who just tuned in, we are discussing the most profitable, least risky real estate investment strategies with Haroon Niket. We have a lot of callers on the line, and those of you who are here to talk to Niket, I mean to Haru, you have a question, you want to just weigh in on the conversation, share your experience, uh, press the number one on your keypad so that we know you want to talk. Otherwise, uh, welcome welcome to the show. And for those of you that are on the Internet, online listening, and you are ready to call in, you can go into our chat room. You can log in on, uh, call in on Skype, or you can dial 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. I'm going to have those uh, websites that Haru mentioned posted in our Facebook page very shortly. And I think um, now we're going to go into a step-by-step plan for success. Yes. Good. So Good. Um, you have to consider – so after we consider the trend and we, we find the general location, then we want to narrow that down. We want to be able to get the most, the most amount of apartment for the least amount of money, if that makes sense. And so we start to – we begin to explore East New York because even though East New York may only pay $174, the rent – that we're going to have to pay is probably significantly less. And so the, the profit margin might be greater. And so as long as, so people here in, in Brooklyn, uh, as an example, as long as you're within a half an hour from Manhattan, most people are okay with staying there. And so if you're close to transit lines here, then that becomes important. And again, depending on where the people are at in the country, if you're close to the tourist attractions or close to, you know, whatever it is that people are traveling to, that becomes important. People need to have a means of getting there relatively quickly. So when we find that, um, you have to consider you need you need its cost a month's rent and a month's security usually. So if we're talking about a fifteen hundred dollar place, we're talking about three thousand dollars so far that we'll need to start. You should have at least two weeks of labor costs on hand. So if your only labor cost in the beginning is probably your cleaning person, um, you can get somebody to clean for $50 a week easily. That's not going to be, you know, difficult. So that's going to be at least $100 for, for you know, your labor cost. Um, to get the electricity, I know in New York, sometimes you need to put down a deposit 
So you, whatever the deposit cost is going to be to get the electricity turned on in your name, you're going to need that. Um, you're going to need cable, uh, I mean, or not necessarily cable, but Internet. So you're going to need high-speed wireless, you know, Internet because people, you know, require that now when they travel. Other than that, you're going to need furniture. Well, how much furniture do you need? You need a bed. You need maybe a chair, a table, possibly a lamp. We want to get the, the you know, IKEA makes furniture almost, you know, made for that type of environment. And so you're going to get IKEA type of furniture. Um, you're going to need bedding, mattress, mattress covers, sheets, blankets, uh, cleaning supplies for the cleaning person, maybe some kitchenware if you're offering that. So uh, coffee maker, maybe toaster, pots and pans, dishes and glasses, curtains, air conditioner for the summer, and your bathroom supplies, right, and your safety system. Maybe you want a security camera, going to need smoke detectors, fire extinguisher, maybe a first aid kit. So those are your startup costs. When you look at your startup costs for an apartment that's maybe $1,500, with $5,000, you should be able to really open up the doors. So you're not talking about a huge startup cost. And that, again, becomes important if you try to buy a place and you need to put down, you know, 5% and closing costs, which makes you about 11%, and you buy a, a building here in, in Brooklyn, which costs you over a million dollars, you're talking about having a significant down payment. So, again, we, we minimize our startup costs. Uh, maybe five, six thousand dollars just to open the doors. That allows, and then you go on the booking sites and you, and you book, and people start coming in. Um, so to get started, really, is not that big of a challenge. You know, this is something that that pretty much anybody can do. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So we're talking laying out five five grand. But with yep. the potential, if we're, like you said, in East New York, $175, uh, profit per, is that profit per day or that's what a room is going for? That's, and we're that's able what a room to, is going for per day, per day. Per day, per day. Yeah. And so um, really within the first month, you could uh, pretty much that first 5000 layout, you could make a good portion of that back. Now, after the second yep. month, you're already into the – the real profit, your 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 well above your profit making area. I don't have a calculator in front of me, but I'm, well, I'm seeing. I, I say too. Now here's my my strategy. I say mm-hmm. borrow the money. Don't don't even don't even use your five thousand dollars. See that's the thing people get stuck on too. Well, I don't have five thousand dollars, so I can't do it. Uh, somebody has five thousand dollars, and if you think about, you know, what interest. Right. So it's actually better if you borrow the five thousand dollars. Let me tell you why. So if you laid out your five thousand, right? So now you're trying to calculate how quickly am I going to make my five thousand back? If I borrow five thousand dollars at say ten percent interest, which is a decent return for somebody, if mm-hmm. I borrowed it at ten percent, then that's five hundred dollars. Normally, when you borrow money, um, especially as a business. What you're going to do, you pay interest only, and then it balloons at the end of the year, which means that you divide the 500 by 12. And if you divide the 500 by 12, then your monthly payment is $41.66, right? So you're already making profit. So $41.66, and then if you put aside 500 for yourself, just put it even in the bank account, right, where it can earn a little interest. 500 in 10 months, you'll have enough to pay them back at the end of the year. And so you're still mm-hmm. making profit every single month instead of, you know, uh, deferring your profit until, you know, a couple of months down the road. Yeah, but I, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. But I, I, just quickly, even 
even if we didn't loan, um, borrow the money, after yeah. the first month, the initial $5,000 investment, almost 75% of that uh, in, a, in that range would be paid by if you were able to have the, uh, the room, uh, yeah. uh, just one room, yeah. um, secured uh, like 25 days out of that month, you will pay yeah. 75% of your, your, that 5000 that you outlay. Absolutely. Second month, you roll it, it's, it's starting to roll and come through a lot better. So this is yeah. not a bad way to get started. No. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a great way to get started. Um, yeah. And again, you know, it's, you're an investor because you took a piece of property and you made a profit from it, you know, and mm-hmm. it's really good because it minimizes the, the, the amount of work that you have to do to it as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's Absolutely. not a lot of, yeah, not a lot of management. So it's not like, it's not even like landlording where you have an apartment and they're calling you up because it's, you know, you have no, it's, it's so much easier uh, to do uh, this way. And the cash outlay again is, is minimal and the profits when you look at that is great. You know, so if you look at your return on investment, you put out five thousand dollars. You know, and if you can make that, if, if even if you made, you know, just like twenty grand, that's still a huge profit. You know, return on investment for five thousand dollars. You know, right, right, right. Yeah. Good stuff. Real good stuff. So this is definitely one of those listening audience that you really have to take note of and really do your homework. Uh, go check out those websites to see the comparative numbers for the location, especially if you're in New York, and compare the neighborhoods, see what a studio goes for, what a one-bedroom goes for, what a house goes for, and then start to listen over many times as you can to this particular uh, segment that Haru has given us, and you will be able to get started uh, down the line of having uh, these uh, vacation rentals and making money on your own. All right. Within a, within a month, everybody should be able to do this because it just takes mm-hmm. a little time to find find the location, a good location. But within mm-hmm. a month, you know, there's no reason why you know everybody can't do this. And then you know you start thinking about added value. How do you add value, you know, to it as well? Um, you know, you can you can start you can do um, you can create like a uh, a relationship with with tour guides. Or tourist mm-hmm. or local restaurants, local clubs. Um, when I had the hostel, I had a, a, a referral program with the, with a taxi company, uh, car service. So when people yes. need a car, they call these guys. So you can add value to it. You know, there's so many other ways. I had a coin-operated wash and dryer. You know, sometimes people want to wash things, so I had that. You know, um, you can sell them toiletries because they people forget things: batteries, toiletries, mm-hmm. um, plug converters. <laughs> You know, vending <laughs> uh, machine. There's so many little things you can you can add, you know, to cr- increase the value even on top of you know uh, what you had. I used to have a. It's weird. I know it sounds it's not crazy. Cause I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I used to have a. Um, uh, what do you call that thing? Oh uh, wow, what's uh, my mind? I used to do um, travel. Well, I had a travel agency, so I used to have a travel agency as well. And so I had insiders to, uh, insiders discount travel was my travel agency. So I would be able to, to do I would people would come back and use my service if they were coming back to New York as well. So that was a little uh, upsell that I used to do too. I was like, hey, I can probably beat this you know, ticket price that you had. So you can have all these added values, um, you know, to, to in addition to just the revenue that you're getting from that. You know, mm-hmm. I used to have I used to provide a foot locker, but I didn't. But you know, people don't bring a lock. I used to rent locks. 
you know. Um, so there's just so many different ways that you can you can increase your value on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I say, you know, if if all these people are going to come and you can you can profit from it, profit from it. You know, right, right. It doesn't make sense not to. And like I said, it's easily duplicatable. Once you get one and you understand the system, you can easily have five, six, ten, you know, twenty if you wanted to. Uh, mm-hmm. And your costs don't really increase at the same rate. They actually get lower um, the more units that you have. So right. Duplicated. So, you know, you can – the sky's the limit on how much money you can make from it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we started uh, this evening talking about the trends, like you said, the trends and then the location. And uh, not to take us off topic, but I, I can recall not too long ago in what we may call Hell's Kitchen in the city – you had the walk-up apartments or maybe apartment buildings that have now converted into small hotels, yes. you know, and you go, wow. And then you look at the prices that the market is allowing them to charge for these things. You says, this was ingenious. Who would have thought they could convert this apartment building into a hotel? But location, well, yes. it says. Yeah. yeah. And, yes, location. And there's a, a real shortage of available places for all these tourists. And we, again, we look at the numbers. We're talking about almost 60 million people coming into New York City a year. Mm-hmm. Like, can, you, can you imagine that? 60 million people coming to New York City a year, and the hotels can't keep up. Um, I don't know if you noticed, the hotels are popping up everywhere. Yes. And like you said, the prices are crazy. And so, you know, why not? 60 million people, and the numbers are continuing to grow. There's no way that the hotels motels, hostels, can service all those people. They just they mm-hmm. can't. Yeah, I thought it was crazy just a few years ago when I looked around in Brooklyn or Philanna Gavin and started seeing hotel, little motels popping up. Like, I wouldn't stay in one of these motels, but it made sense. There's nowhere else to stay. <laughs> right. Where, where you going? Right by the train. Right? And I thought that was crazy. You got the train yes. track running right by the window. Like, who would oh. want that? But they want to be close to the train. Yeah, they don't want to have to walk the neighborhood. They want to just go ahead and jump on the train, and go to Long Island, yeah. or go back to yeah. the city. Yeah. 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 This so, is good stuff. Good. All right. So that's just one way to do it. Then, you know, you know, that's not, again, vacation rentals won't work everywhere. But the sandwich lease concept works everywhere to control not, not home. So one of the things that, that – I told you I did when I transitioned from, from basically vacation rentals was to um, putting the Department of Homeless Services in there. Um, if we think about it, if there's a shortage of available places for tourists to go, and there's a shortage really of places to go for just about everybody, you know, especially here in the city, then the people who are – I don't want to say the throwaways, but the people who are, are not in the mainstream have an even more difficult time finding housing. And so mm-hmm. one of the things we have to look at is that many government-funded and uh, programs and many charitable organizations that fund housing um, cannot provide the housing that the people need because there's a shortage of availability. And so we start, have to start looking at certain populations. The homeless population, everybody knows but there are a significant number of returning veterans who need housing. Mm-hmm. There are domestic violence survivors who need housing. Mm-hmm. There are people with mental health issues that need housing. There are developmentally disabled functioning, high functioning, developmentally disabled adults that need housing. 
Um, and with those two things, we have to understand they, they, there was, there has been a trend for the last 20 years of moving people out of mental health facilities and homes for developmentally disabled adults and to try to make them more independent. So they have mm-hmm. programs that actually finance housing for them. There's housing that's needed for people who are physically disabled. There's housing that's needed for people who are aging. We have an aging population, and people want to be more independent now. We have, um, here in New York, we have HASA, which is for um, HIV and AIDS patients. There's housing for that. There's housing for people who are drug and alcohol abusers. There's housing for people who are released from incarceration, which is huge now because all the people who are being released from the Rockefeller drug laws are all hitting the streets now. Um, They also need housing. So what we've discovered is that there's far more demand for suitable housing than there is housing that's available. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to put, now here's the, the, the thing that people don't understand. Most of those programs are willing to pay above market value because of their uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, it's a way, again, for, to do the sandwich lease because you, as long as you control it, then the program's okay with that. And so the so, easiest way so to yes. How do you how do you approach uh, a sandwich lease? Okay, so okay, so I'll do a scenario with you. So you're you're a landlord, and you have an apartment that's available. And let's say it's not one of the most desirable neighborhoods. So I wouldn't you know go to one of the wealthier neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but you know it can be just on the fringe of the wealthier neighborhoods or even further out. And your apartment is sitting on the market, and I ask you, I said, well, how much? Uh, Sister Rafika, how much how much do you want for the apartment? And what would you t- just give me any number? You can tell me any number. Twenty five hundred. Okay, so what if I could pay you more than twenty five hundred? Would you be interested in uh, working out something with me? Yes, let me hear your terms. Hey, there you go. And so automatically, you, I, I catch your interest by saying, what if I can offer you more than twenty five hundred? Uh, and the harder that unit was for you to rent, the more appealing that sounds. And so I tell, and I would tell you straight, I said, look, I'm an investor. And this is what I do for a living. Um, I find units, and I find a way to maximize the value for me. Uh, so clearly I don't want to live in your space, but I want to take the, the hard work of landlording actually away from you. So you won't have the stress of landlording. I'll actually manage, you know, whatever I put in there, I'll manage that, and I'll pay you more than the 2500 for allowing me to do what we call uh, a sublet. So if you allow me to then rent it out again, as long as you get your money, are you happy? Mm-hmm. Of course you are. And then you say, well, what do you want to put in there? And I say, well, I work with government-funded programs. And you say, whoa, I don't know about these government-funded programs. So let me tell you the program that I do work with and see if you're comfortable with that. And then you say, okay, well, what's the program? And then I'd have to explain whatever program I'm going to put in there. And if you're okay with that, then you you would do it. If you're not okay with that, you're like, oh, no, I don't want those people in my place, then mm-hmm. it's really illegal for you not to have the people in your place, but I would move on because I didn't want any problems. Right. that simple. Right. Okay. Well, Haru, so, I want to say that you, you always make it seem very simple, and I guess that's how you should see it. <laughs> like, it's not hard. It yeah, can be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happens, we, we create artificial barriers sometimes because it's far. We say, why would somebody go for that? Well, why wouldn't you go for that as long as you're getting paid? Right. Like, what would be, you know, and it's, and I tell you, when I first started out doing a hospital, I had four locations. 
um, I owned the first two buildings. And I said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me to keep buying buildings with, you know, laying out that big cost when I could rent it and, again, you know, not have the, the liability and still and the profit margins be greater. It made sense to me. And so I would just always negotiate with the, the landlord. I would tell them everything I was doing, and they would say, well, I want a little more because it's probably going to be, be a little more wear and tear. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. You know, but I would pay, if I paid somebody $1,500 a month, I was probably making $10,000 a month. So I didn't mind paying them $1,500 a month. They could have asked me for $2,500 a month. I would have paid them $2,500 a month because I was making $10,000 a month. You know, so it just it just worked out. You know, you, you calculate that into your cost. It's, it's fine, you know. So this one, then we're going to approach this one a little bit different than we did um, the vacation rentals. So the, the, the first thing you have to do, because every, every location is different, you're going to have to do a Google search on, you know, different types of, of government-funded programs or, or housing agencies, you know, in your area. Because you – and you want to Google um, local, state, and federal programs, and then you want to do charitable organizations, you know, veterans organizations. You want to just Google as many as you can and, and develop a list. When I was doing programs, I had um, – I, well, I have a team that actually helped me with I have an apprentice team who, who worked on it. And I had a list of over 100 different agencies first. And I did a little research because what I want to do, I don't want to find a piece of uh, a property first. I don't want to find the apartment first and then go approach the agencies because for two reasons. One, I'm losing time, which means I'm losing money while the place is vacant. And two, every program doesn't have the same requirement for um, the tenant to stay in a place, meaning – some places don't consider a room without windows suitable. So, you know, you have, sometimes you have these railroad apartments and you have two, maybe two rooms in the middle, but they don't have a window. They don't consider that a bedroom, and therefore they won't accept that. You know? mm-hmm. So you have to know. So, so my thing is I, I did research on the programs first. So I want to know certain things. I want to know how much they pay, how they pay. I want to know what their criteria is for their tenants meaning, you know, what the structure has to be like, how many exits there has to be, do we have to have fire extinguishers. I want to know everything that they require to, put, to make the place suitable. I want to know if they have certain locations that are off limits. Um, you know, I want to find out everything I can about the programs first. Once I, I narrow it down to the program that makes sense to me, then I go looking for a place that suits the program, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I want to find. I'm, I'm I'm looking for my target market first, right? So I find the program, then I go looking for, you know, a place that that makes sense to fit their needs. Now there are some agencies, some agencies, believe it or not, that will pay you, and you can negotiate it. They will pay you to do the modification. There are some agencies that are so desperate, they'll give you a year's worth of rent in advance to be in your place. And so you oh, have I to like look that. at all those. Yeah, you like that one, huh? <laughs> so some of those are the ones that, that most people don't want, though. Um, so we, have, we look at those factors first, right? Um, and then, then we, you know, get into the place. And so it becomes a lot easier, I think, to do it that way than to do it the other way around. Um, doing it that way, definitely make sure you, you have a, you know, a corporate entity. I always say you should always do a corporate entity 
you know, put the lease in the corporation's name, limit your liability in that way as well, you know, even further, um, you know, and, and see see how, how you can renew the, the, the whole thing too because that's important too. You don't want to have that program. You don't want to do a two-year lease and then the program's only good for a year and they lose their funding, right? So you want to look at all those different types of things too. Um, you have religious programs, privately funded programs, like I said, city, state, federal programs, some programs that go from a, a state program and after a year transfer to a federal program. So you want to look at all those different types of things. Um, and like I said, just, just negotiate until until it makes sense. So um, some some places pay by the bed, some places pay by the room, some places pay by the apartment, some places places will pay more for supervision, some places want it totally hands off. Like when you look at the domestic violence program, they t- they usually don't want anybody around. They don't want anybody to know about the place. They'll manage it. But then you have some other places who want 24/7 supervision, who will pay you significantly more, you know, for doing that. Um, and then there are upsells with that too, you know. Um, you know some some places, if you can uh, tie it into a social working program, you know, as an upsell, um, this thing with that job placement. It depends on the type of program that you put in there. Um, there are some some programs that will pay 100% of the rent, some that pay maybe 70% of the rent or 80%, and the person's responsible for the other 20%. Be cautious of those types of programs. Um, I met a woman at one time, and I'm so glad she schooled me to the game and didn't try to take advantage of me. She would, what she would do was she would get on Section 8. Now, Section 8 I don't think is a, a good program for this type of thing, by the way. She would go on Section 8, and Section 8 would pay the majority of her rent. But she signed a lease agreement with the landlord to pay just a small portion. Then she would start working again, and Section 8 would not pay the majority of the rent. And then she would, the landlord would ask her for the whole, t- whole thing, and she said, no, my agreement with you was only to pay this portion. And she would do that until they took her to court and took several months to get her out, and she would quit her job and start the whole process again and again. So, wow. You know, you have to, yeah. So you have to be really cautious of that, you know. She's the only person, and I, like I said, I was so glad she was open and honest with me. Um, but you have to really be careful, you know, and make sure that in your agreement it also says should their situation change and the program no longer funds it, that they're responsible for the entire amount. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I want to bring an example of something that you said by u- utilizing, like, uh, charitable uh, organizations. I just recently visited a, uh, a family member uh, in a uh, in, over there by Brooklyn College, and the apartment buildings over there. Uh, several of the uh, the residents there are, are leased by the Catholic charities, and in yeah. those apartments, they modify them slightly to accommodate those who may have um, mental uh, disabilities. And so there are pretty much homes with counselors 24-7 to look after those who can't really function independently on their own. And I was amazed to know the, the, the volume of apartments throughout that area, which is not necessarily an area where you can get an apartment uh, on, on the low, so to speak. So they're leasing them, and they're getting, uh, you know, I guess there's a great amount of money. The agency is... Uh, making money, I don't know exactly how it works, right. but I see exactly what you were talking about in action with them. You know, right. they, they're, they're getting a, a block of, of a rentals probably at a discounted price 
with with uh, with federal or other uh, uh, monies to assist them to run this program in these places. Now, you I'll know? tell you the, the, the trick. The, one of the tricks to that is when you find out about the agencies, find out who the real gatekeeper is. You know, mm-hmm. that's a little challenging, but you just start having conversations with receptionists and this and that, and then find out who the real gatekeeper is because that's the person who's going to be able to put you on. Um, you know, I, I discovered that when I was doing programs. I mean, and, and some people are, you know, if they like you, they like you. If they don't, they don't. You know, it's just this weird thing. But try to develop a rapport with whoever the gatekeeper is. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they like they like donuts. You bring them some donuts in the morning. You know, whatever it is, so that you get on their good side, and then they'll they'll actually give you you know a lot of the details that most people don't get that they can't Google. Um, mm-hmm. they'll exactly, yeah, they'll tell you exactly how to win. Um, you know, so that's that's really important. You know, uh, anytime you you're trying to be an investor, you know, being uh, having a rapport with people is, is so critical. And you know, and it's really important with the agencies because um, you know some people they they'll give you the, they'll hold the best stuff for you, or they'll give you the, the garbage. You know, right. that you don't want if you're on their bad side. You know, or they'll just make you jump through hoops and you know tie you up in paperwork, and you'll never get anything. You know, if you're not on the good side, so. You know, it's really important, again, just to not just be a number or be seen as somebody who's just trying to make this big money. You know, develop a relationship, you know, and that, that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, one other thing, uh, um, and I, I know this goes with location, but would it be better for those who are listening to look for multiple dwellings, uh, small apartment buildings versus uh, single or two family homes for this type of venture. You know, well, I guess you know where I really should have started, and I have it in my notes. And I said ah, I'm just not going to mention it. It really is based upon what your desired return on investment is, right? So how much money are you trying to make from this thing? You know, um, some people are okay with making a little extra cash. Some people want to live off of it. Some people want to have a great life from it. And so, you know, to me. There's that factor one, how much money you want to make, and and I say if it's not more work, then why not make the most money you can, right? And so in that case, a multiple dwelling would make sense. And then it's how much can you manage through your system, not you manage per se yourself, but how how can you create a system that can manage multiple units, or you know, are you trying to do this real small scale skeleton you know crew of management and just have one place? You know, I, even then, I think the profit margin becomes greater because your costs don't increase exponentially like that. Your costs kind of, you know, uh, go small, smaller increments than the profit. And so should you do multiple dwellings? I think you should if you want to maximize the profit. Or if you can't, try to do stuff that's in this, almost the same location, right? So one person can handle the cleaning. One person, you know, the same person can handle you know, uh, taking care of the things so they're not spread out. And then that's what really kind of increases cost a little bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now we have two techniques and two strategies, and that was um, first the vacation homes or, you know, vacation dwellings. I don't know. What's your proper terminology for that? Vacation rentals. Uh, vacation, vacation rentals. Okay. Right. And then the sandwich leasing, which we uh, are, or well, it's subletting. All sandwich leasing, right? So it's mm-hmm. all sandwich leasing, subletting. But then what do you do with the, How do you maximize that sandwich lease? How do you maximize the subletting? 
and right. in certain locations, it wasn't vacation rentals. Like we know here in New York City, uh, if you're not doing vacation rentals, poof, um, you're, you're really letting go of something that's that's a, a you know a huge money maker. And then the other thing, like I said, was how to use that sandwich lease using housing programs. Housing programs are not going away. They're not going anywhere. Um, as a matter of fact, they're getting squeezed out more and more. And so that means the, the, what they're willing to pay will have to increase if they're going to service, you know, their clients. And so housing programs are not just New York City. That can be done. I don't care what state you're in, what city you're in. There's some type of housing program, you know, because, they're, like I said, there are there's so many different areas that have to be covered. There's so many different types of, of people that need homes. Everybody needs a home, but there's so mm-hmm. many different, you know, uh, unique situations where these people need housing that, mm-hmm. you know, you can do that forever, you know, and then it shifts. Like the Department of Homeless Services went out, they cut their program, and it's okay because somebody else took their place because those people didn't disappear, right? And that's one thing we have to understand. Those people are not going to disappear. So if one program gets, you know, cut or the funding is lost, somebody else is going to pick that up. Right, right, right. Okay, I'm I'm in. I, I love what I'm hearing. Love what I'm hearing. <laughs> Good. So we're so, getting close to the closing hour, Haru, and I know there are some more points that you want to cover, so I don't want us to get cut off. Um, we may have to speed it up a bit. Okay, so I'm going to go really, really fast. Um, <laughs> so the next one, <laughs> the next, the next one, um, people, it's, it's weird because people don't usually think of this. And there are education, educational exchange programs. And there are people who are traveling, students who are coming from all over the world. And they go in these immersion programs where they, they stay here and they get immersed in English and, and American culture. And they usually stay between four, four to ten weeks, sometimes a little shorter, sometimes a little longer, basically a semester, you know, whether it's a, uh, you know, a winter semester or summer semester. They stay for that duration of time. And you could do a simple Google, Google search on exchange programs or uh, foreign students coming in, housing for foreign students, and there are dozens and dozens of sites from all over the world where students are looking to find housing for short-term, short-term stays. You know, you're talking about, again, four to ten weeks, and they pay good money. And what they're usually looking for is a room, roommate option so that they'll have a couple of students you know, in there at the same time for the social value, you know, as well. And so that's another way, you know, to to look at using the sandwich lease. You know, if you can um, – and some people, I know, do a combination. What they'll do during the school year, um, they'll do the exchange students because they actually pay sometimes more than um, the Airbnb or some of the other programs. And then they'll do Airbnb maybe in the summertime, uh, which is the peak season for, you know, the vacation rentals in, in, in the peak season in summer when the students are usually gone. Um, so you can actually, you know, do a combination of things and, you know, that, you know, becomes extremely profitable as well. So it's almost the same process, you know, do a Google search, find these different um, agencies that, that, you know, provide housing. So you don't have to do the marketing. You get listed on their sites. They provide the, the students. The students actually pay them. The, the agencies pay you. Um, and, again, in those, those months where, uh, the students aren't coming, which is primarily the summer, then you can do the vacation rentals for the summer. And in the summertime, by the way, you can charge almost double because that's the hot season, that's the heavy season. So when we looked at $150 a, a, a night before, you might be talking about $300 a night in the summertime. 
So mm-hmm. it works out. Yeah. Okay. So there was one one more concept that I really wanted to, you know, if we have a few minutes, spend some time on, which is, you know, really powerful. Um, to add value to to this whole concept, if you did a lease with an option to buy, a little more complex to negotiate, but it's doable. So if people don't understand what that is, instead of me doing just a straight lease for a year, what I would do is I'd possibly approach a landlord. So if we go back to Rafika and, and Rafika, you were selling your property and you were having a difficult time selling it and you said you wanted $500,000 for the property. I said, what if I can give you more than $500,000 for the property? Would you be interested? What are you going to say? Yes. Of course. Of course you're going to say yeah. yes. And, right? So if I can give you more than 500000 and you couldn't sell it for 500000 I got your ear. And I'll tell you what I'd like to do is what we call a lease with an option to buy. And then I would explain that. What a lease with an option to buy is I create a lease agreement with you for I'd, I'd like to do two years, which means that I have the right to sublet in that lease agreement. So, again, I'm going to take away the responsibility of landlording from you, no stress on your part. I'm going to put people in there, whatever my program is, and I'm going to make money from it. But at the end of the two years, what I'd like to do is um, have the right to buy this property from you at the price we agree on today. And you're going to say, well, I don't know. And you say, okay, but think about this. I'm going to give you, let's say I give you $10,000 up front just for the right to do this. That $10,000 would go towards a down payment if I exercise my right to buy. Every month, I'm going to pay you the lease, and I'm going to give you a little bit more on top of that to go towards a down payment. And so you're going to say, oh, okay, why would I do that? Because if I don't buy the property, if I don't exercise the option to buy, you get to keep all of the money, the lease money and the money I put towards the down payment. So then there's no risk. You made money on the lease. You made money that I was putting towards the down payment, and you just put it back on the market. And then even if you sold it for 500000 you still made more than your 500000 But if I exercise my right to buy, you still made more than 500000 So there's no risk on your part. All the risk is on my part. And so what are you going to say? Of course I want to do this. So what I would do, though, in my purchase contract, I would have, I'd have to put uh, the right to assign the contract. And that's very important. So next to my name where I signed the contract, I would have to put and or assigned which means that I have a right to assign this contract to somebody else. So what would I do? I'd put my program in there or I'd put my Airbnb in there or whatever it is, the students, whatever, and I would show profitability for an entire year. I'd make sure I was making money for an entire year. At that point, at the end of that year, I would try to find a new buyer, a new investor, to buy the contract, the sales contract for the property. Why? Because I'm not just selling you a property. I've had added value. I'm selling you a business model that works on top of this. And so I make my money on my lease agreement, then I sell that contract and get back the money that I put towards the down payment and then some on top of it. I know that's really complex and we don't have a whole lot of time. Does that make somewhat sense to you guys? Oh, my goodness. It makes simple yeah, sense. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little, little challenging, but basically what I'm doing is it's, I'm not going to exercise the option to buy. I'm going to walk away from it, but I'm not going to walk just walk away. What I'm going to do is sell that contract, the purchase contract, which goes with the lease too, to somebody else who's interested in a building that's shown that it can make money already. Mm-hmm. So instead of so I've made my money on the lease, and I might sell that contract. If I put ten thousand down and say two hundred dollars a month, which is another twenty four hundred, so I put twelve thousand four hundred down. I might sell a contract for thirty maybe $35,000. 
So I made my leash money and an, an additional maybe twenty twenty five thousand dollars on top of that. And then I go someplace else and do the same thing again. Okay. okay. I, that's a little little that's a little more sophisticated than than the other ways, but um, you know, definitely a way to make to make some money. Okay. And then, you know, the last thing we have to understand is again going back to what I said in the beginning. If real estate is trendy, then you know we, we ride it till the wheels fall off. But then we have to be ready to adapt and adjust before the wheels fall off, because we need to be paying attention to those trends all the time. And since no trend will last forever, but if we stick to our principle of having options, not obligations, then it doesn't matter that that particular business model doesn't work, meaning that uh, vacation rentals might go down because if vacation rentals go down, then housing programs will probably increase because that means there's a change in the economy. And so as long as we understand that and we control that that property and, and don't have that all the liability attached, then we should do well. Well, I think we got an earful tonight. I really have taken some notes, and I'm hoping – that our listening audience took advantage of the opportunity to join our classroom without walls and get absolutely the best information that they can get for free here on the Keys 107. So, Niket, Harun Niket, as always, you have delivered. Thank you. <laughs> Harun, give the information again about the uh, seminar on Sunday. Yeah, so I have a free workshop where I'll be covering not only real estate, but business and securities investing and a whole bunch of other, you know, uh, immediately uh, usable strategies for making money um, that don't cost, you know, a lot of front, don't uh, require a lot of skills, a lot of time. And that's going to be this Sunday, um, May 21st from 2 to 5 p.m., three hours long at 216 Green Avenue. So you can go to my Facebook page, uh, Insiders Group Inc., and you can see the event there and just check that you're going, or you can email me at haru at insidersgroup.com and I'll hold a seat for you there. I <laughs> uh, want to let everybody know before we go that all of our shows are archived on blogtalkradio.com slash thekeys107. We are so excited to be a part of the iTunes community. You can find us at thekeys107 and on our website at www.thekeys107network.com Com. And on our resource page, we will have all of the uh, websites that Haru talked about, and that's some place that you can check in frequently as we will continuously update that with resources for you to help you with your wealth-building plan. Tune in next week when we will have a emotionally charged show with Miss Mildred D. Muhammad, who is the wife, the ex-wife of the D.C. Sniper. She's going to come on and share her story, her experience of living through abuse before, during, and well after the D.C. Sniper's demise. So this is a show that you should tune into if you know anybody who is being abused Tune in on Thursday with Mildred D. Muhammad. And then coming up June 1st, James, are you there? Oh, yeah, I am here. I am here. I don't have all my notes in front of me. But <laughs> I think what we, what we have for June 1st is a story about a woman who's an activist 
who has been championing the cause for the water, the land, the the the, the, the Dakota pipeline, and rallying up young people across America. And that's none other than Queen uh, Yonazada Longwolf, who is right. the granddaughter of our great Minister Louis Farrakhan. And uh, her mother was a great warrior and uh, activist back in the day. So she'll be on to talk about herself. That's what we want to know. We want to know a little bit more about her and her activity. And it's the woman behind the mission. The woman behind the mission. So we have great shows lined up for you. Um, it is time for us to go. Uh, thank you so much for all of our new listeners who called in today to, to check out what Harul Naked has to say. And Harul will be back on in June, and the date for that is June 15th. Ready to put it on your calendar so you don't forget. I am Rafika. Good night. Good night, y'all. James.